everybody always says it's a pleasure to be here, but that really has meaning for me. Not because Freud lived here, although that's an important reason, but on a very personal grounds. When I was uh, a backbench Labour MP, I came high in the ballot for private members and a report had come out on uh, guardianship and adoption from the Houghton Committee. And a group had been formed to mobilize forces to try and get this put through on a private member's bill. Uh, I won't go too much into it, but uh, I am glad to say that, firstly, the bill fell on the same day that Ted Heath called an election, much to the fury of many MPs who've been told by their constituents, having been on the Jimmy Young show, that they had to be there. Uh, but I then carried out as Minister of Health the legislation for the 1975 Children's Act, and embedded in the text is the title of Anna Freud's, I think, remarkable book, The Best Interests of the Child. Uh, it's a wonderful book, and I make no secret of it, profoundly influenced that legislation. Well, uh, I'm tempted to say right at the start a very famous quotation. But before I will, I think I'll try and give you a little definition of hubris. It's not a medical term. It was used by the Greeks, and they attached great importance to it, particularly feature of it, which they strictly disliked, was when it was accompanied by contempt. And I would go as far as to say that if you suspect gathering hubris in anyone, and you also detect uh, contempt, then you are dealing with hubris. It's a particular feature of it. It's a flowing out of all the other features. Um, the ancient Greeks uh, knew a lot about personality, and uh, I think that it's extremely important to recognize how often hubris has been described in literature. Shakespeare frequently dealt with it perhaps above all in Coriolanus. And uh, one of the most famous dictums, if you like, Lord Acton's famous dictum, I want to draw to your attention. It's often misquoted. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. I thought that was all he had to say, and I was just making certain in the final edition of a book I'd been writing uh, some years ago about hubris that the quote was exactly right. And a person was in the House of Lords Library. It's very interesting, you're looking up that quotation. There's a much more important quotation attached to the same speech by Lord Acton. And he pointed out to me, and it's worth quoting, I cannot accept your canon that we are to judge Pope and King unlike other men with a favorable presumption that they did no wrong. If there is any presumption, it is the other way against the holders of the power. And I said to him, how do you know? He said, I am Lord Acton. <laughs> <laughs> the, the sixth Lord Acton. 
And it says for how infrequent a tenant I am in the House of Lords. <laughs> and I didn't recognize him as a fellow peer. Well, there we are. Anyhow, uh, another very interesting definition is the historian Barbara Tuchman, an American writer, wrote brilliantly about Vietnam and a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. She said, the power breeds folly, that the power to command frequently causes failure to think, that the responsibility of power often fades as its exercise augments. The overall responsibility of power is to govern as reasonably as possible in the interests of the state and its citizens. So we're on a big subject, and it's quite important to try and analyze it correctly. Now, a little about me in that I want to, for this particular audience, uh, reveal all my prejudices and all the sins of my past, or at least those that are relevant. And the one that was relevant is not just that I was a neurologist, of which I am very proud, and certainly in a, following in a distinctive path, but I was also, as part of being a registrar in neurology, made a registrar in psychiatry. And for some of you who will know the British scene at that uh, time in the uh, 1960s, my consultant psychiatrist was a certain William Sargent, who had a very considerable reputation, rather adverse, in the uh, field of uh, psychoanalysis. He used to enjoy being rude about analysts. Actually, underneath was a very knowledgeable person about Freud, Jung, and Adler. And uh, not contemptuous, really. Um, but he was a great big rugby-playing forward who believed in physical methods of treatment, most of which most, many of you will be aghast to hear about. He certainly convinced me that in a purple depression, which can be very serious when women quite frequently kill not just themselves but their children, there is a role, and I think still today, for electroconvulsive therapy. But he used it in a massive way. I had gone used to doing so with um, the neurological and psychiatric casualties of war at Belmont Hospital. Secondly, he was ready to consider, particularly in cases of really seriously damaging uh, cases of um, obsessive behavior, uh, modified prefrontal leucotomies, which will again surprise many. I don't think that has worn so well, as a, although still there is a, perhaps a few cases for it. And of course he would uh, hit a patient with a massive combination of drugs. Uh, and when we medical students started to question it, let alone the registrar, he would remind them, everybody, that he had been very depressed when he was the resident assistant at St. Mary's Hospital. And he used to use this analogy, which is crude, but nevertheless worth listening to in terms of the justification. How often he'd say to the medical students, have you ever seen anybody commit suicide because of pain? How frequently have you seen people commit suicide because of psychiatric illness, depression, anxiety, and else other illnesses. Therefore, he said, we are entitled to take risks with our drug therapy if we think we can avoid that situation. 
worth thinking about. Uh, I don't want to belabor the point. Now, I started to write about hubris syndrome uh, really quite a long time ago, and I wrote about it in a more definitive way with another uh, doctor and who was a real psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at Duke University at the time. And that paper was written 10 years ago now, in 2009, in Brain. And it's gone from the thing. Do I have to press a button to go? Okay, which one? Anyone? Uh, and I leave it up there for you to read, but that is the basic characteristics that we wrote about what we call then hubris syndrome. And we then put uh, a question mark, a uh, acquired personality disorder question mark. I say right at the start now, I'm writing what I hope will be a 10th anniversary follow-up to the brain article and it will fess up that we use the wrong word, disorder. We did put a question mark by it. But I don't think uh, what I'm trying to describe in hubris syndrome is as debilitating in the social and other ways of being called a disorder. It can probably develop into it. But the, what I'm really after is trying to get people to focus on people who the great British public and in all other countries of the world too are very well aware of and they are not just famous politicians or leading generals they are people who are put into positions of power and let everybody else around them know that they are in power and often use it in an abusive way but they are by and large what you would call if you like in inverted commas normal people they have been presidents and prime ministers chosen through a, a very public form of selection. Uh, they have people who have been in business who have often gone through all the best procedures of selecting people in uh, business school procedures. Or they have been people who have risen up in their own organization, whether at hospital or school, to be headmaster or consultant with the acquiescence and indeed often the full support of their colleagues. And it's only in power, and often the longer the period in power, that the acquired nature of the syndrome manifests itself. Now, I think a recent book has been written, published by um, a group of people who were in the Daedalus Trust, which I helped uh, establish, uh, and it called the epidemic of hubris. And I think it is, quite frankly, becoming more prevalent. Now, it may be because we recognize it more, and that, of course, is always the problem in trying to do it. But it may be that there's something else running through this, that we um, expect too much of our leaders in all walks of life. And we are gripped by the presentation of the leader in the press particularly, but in all forms of media, as the decisive figure, the charismatic figure, the uh, person 
who will lead the company or the bank or the school or the hospital to great things. And yet, time after time, psychologists in particular who assess leadership come up with boring facts that actually the better the leader, the less exciting they are. The more they are prepared to move cautiously when they do move on the basis of evidence and that this other picture of the flamboyant charismatic leader has when examined objectively a very poor record okay well that being said I would draw attention to one thing in this are the five elements that are labeled unique to hubris syndrome and Broadly speaking, if you've got two or three of those, we would say you're very likely to have hubris syndrome. But when you look at this, you'll see, you know, I mean, this could be acquired to a lot of people. Restlessness, recklessness, and impulsiveness. An unshakable belief that in a court, particularly an international court of opinion, they will be vindicated. And I don't need to go into names. And uh, six, a tendency to talk of themselves in the third person or using the royal we. Do you remember, we are a grandmother? <laughs> and then another one, uh, uh, which I missed out, was uh, an identification of themselves with the nation or the organization to the extent that they regard their outlook and interests as identical. Now, this is a very serious problem, and you cannot get this country's leaders and its decision makers to face up to it. Why not? They'll spend billions of pounds building statistical models of decision makers in banks and in exposed uh, insurance companies or in uh, merchant banks or other things. But try to persuade them to spend money on behavioral research, you meet absolute block. I'd best, uh, I don't like fundraising, but I tried my very best for the Daedalus Trust to raise funds. I ended up having to pay for it, too much for it myself. Anyhow, it also became too identified with my views, which is always dangerous. So most organizations should have a short life, and we had nine years, and we've now passed that with what little money it had into it to the philosophy group at the Maudsley Hospital. I may say I'm a tremendous believer in postgraduate medicine, and I regret the fact that they have been destroyed by successive governments in this country, so that we have great difficulty in retaining centers of excellence which are you know, globally recognized. One of the great advantages for psychiatry is that we do have a world-class postgraduate medical school in uh, the Maudsley, and long may it be remained, but there's endless pressure put it into the mainstream of medicine and just be one other psychiatric unit of four big ones in London or something like that and not have it as something where people can go from all the other extremely good medical schools which operate across the country as a whole and if ever you want to discover the problems of Brexit which we may or may not come to later I would only say just be careful the London-based orientation of medicine is still very strong, extended out to a little bit to Oxford and Cambridge and some other places, but not much. 
and we need to be very, very careful about that. Now, I come back to the question of Trump. Once Trump was elected, and uh, I didn't scoff at the prospect that he might be elected, in the sense I stayed up all night, I think, to watch it. Um, I, I decided to stop anything I'd written about hubris syndrome over the uh, previous decade and try and see what the lessons were, if any, from this thing. Now, what is Trump? First of all, many people in America convince themselves through uh, shock, anxiety, and anger, very soon after he got elected, that he suffered from narcissistic personality disorder. Now, there will be people in this audience who know better than I what narcissistic personality disorder is, I suspect, but there will also be people who don't really know about it. Because the problem is, it is a big category of illness in the United States and features very prominently in their DSM, their Diagnostic uh, Manual for Psychiatric Illnesses. But it doesn't have anywhere near the same place in Europe or in this country. Now, um, the reasons for it are complicated. One of them is that we have always been rather careful about what is now called bipolar. In the old days, when I was a student, bipolar was not used, and we talked about um, depression and manic depression. And again, there was a distinction across the Atlantic. In the UK, you didn't make that diagnosis without one very clear manic episode. Now it's seen as a uh, spectrum illness, like a hell of a lot of illnesses are seen as spectrum illnesses. I'm sure that isn't an excuse for lazy thinking, but I'm suspicious of it. I think it's much better to try to define, knowing that by categorizing, you have some dangers, and that is really one of the dangers of NPD. Now, uh, I can f safely tell you that it has not had a very long life, this uh, um, history of uh, Trump being a narcissistic personality disorder. In the New York Times, the Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry uh, at Duke University, Alan Francis, wrote a very short letter and he said who was he, that he was the man who had written up NPD in the third edition of the Psychiatric Disease Classification, and he made it crisply clear that Trump did not have NPD. He went on to say, he may be a world-class narcissist, but that does not make him mentally ill. And I think this is because DSM gives criterion to social impairment. And I agree with that diagnosis for what it's worth. Not much. You know, I'm not a proper doctor any longer. Uh, I get very upset if people are rude about my uh, medical prowess on very little grounds and extremely uh, relaxed about people being rude about my political views. <laughs> but I do recognize that I am an looking back on this issue. But I do believe that was very important. So this easy pass of thinking that the Trump phenomenon, was, and I think it is a phenomenon, was uh, explicable easily on grounds of mental illness. That's, it doesn't stand up. Now, what are the other things that 
we need to focus on if we're going to go into this? Well, one of the things is that narcissism is there in a huge number of very successful people throughout the decades. Uh, I mean, the, the best of the biggest and the wealthiest Rockefeller was a classical narcissist who talked to himself and planned out and had all the uh, qualities of it. And a great many people uh, in the past in powerful positions have had narcissism. And of course, of the two categories of professions, if you think politics is a profession, are politicians and generals. And if you want to see a classic narcissist go to that wonderful film on Patton and see the example of that general and there it all is in all its florid nature and yet when he uh, slapped uh, two GIs on the face in a hospital saying that they were scrimshankers and ought to be at the front and were cowards and called them cowards to their face and the news reached Eisenhower Eisenhower made the decision that he would get him to apologize if he could publicly. Knew he wouldn't really. But he didn't, di he didn't think he was entitled to sack him because he was the best tank commander that he had ever seen in action and he dared not have him at some stage in the future at his disposal. And when the German invasion of the Ardennes took place and outflanked the advance uh, uh, into uh, liberating France and the Low Countries, uh, it was to Patton that Eisenhower turned. Eisenhower was a complete opposite, a, a very modest man, extremely intellectual, although you hardly notice it because he never was told by his mother never to show it extremely knowledgeable about war and in a very interesting figure. Now, therefore, we have to look carefully at these people. And so what I thought I'd do in this book is to go back and look with the eyes of narcissism and where Trump came from and remembering that in all the classifications of narcissism, of which Freud still is one of the most fundamental, that there was an added uh, additional thing for people who were in management, a fourth for, uh, table of narcissism. And there's been a very good book written by Maccabee, I think. I'll come back to it later. Yes, Malcolm Maccabee, the productive narcissist, in which he demonstrates pretty effectively, and he was an analyst and an advisor of people in business, and that there can be a value in narcissism, and particularly in business. And we need to remember that as we assess this man. I don't agree with him when he claimed that uh, Lincoln is a narcissist. I think Lincoln is a very extraordinary example of a person who had very serious depression, but was a binder together of people. And the book about him called Team of Rivals is a wonderful book showing that a good leader is capable of appointing people who have different views to theirs and wants to have different views around them and I believe that is uh, very hard to square with narcissism so what did I do I, I tried to go into first of all America 
and uh, helped by the fact that my wife is American and that her father was a publisher and one of my treasured possessions is the complete works of Jung. Now I have not read them all <laughs> but I do tell you this that when I was a medical student in my last year at St. Thomas's we were allowed to go off for a month and do effectively what we liked and I saw an advertisement in EMJ and it said that um, there was going to be a month's course in Zurich at the Bloiler Institute and it was going to look at all these issues and particularly of course schizophrenia and it listed the lecturers and the lecture I thought this is him. So I signed up, paid my, uh, the medical student paid, I paid my fees, and I turned up. And I couldn't find the lecture theater, and all the signs seemed to be, I couldn't read them and everything like that. And I got eventually into the lecture theater, and the chap was speaking in German, I thought it was just the introduction. And it soon dawned on me that the whole lecture, for a month, <laughs> so key decision. Do I go back to St. Thomas's and my head between my or do I sit it out? And I then had a very great friend who had been at Cambridge with me, who was a Swiss doctor. We went on traveling to Afghanistan together. And he had, uh, his father was a very famous uh, pharmacologist. And he had a lovely old flat in the center of Zurich, in the old part. And we'd been planning to go climbing mountains at the weekend, which I certainly wanted to stay for. So I'd made the decision I would stay and I would read as much as I possibly could of Freud, Adler and Jung. And that was the best investment I've ever made in my life for thousands of reasons. And I don't think you can go through even a fraction of what I did read without being profoundly influenced by it. So now we come back to what to do then. It seemed to me the best thing to do is to trace Trump's rise within the American political system and to use the work which I had done on a book called uh, In Sickness and in Power, which was originally a book about illnesses, genuine illnesses, if you like, physical illnesses of heads of government around the world, and um, try and see some British Prime Ministers. That book dealt with people in lots of uh, different countries. The fact that President Mitterrand had uh, cancer of the prostate unknown to all his staff for uh, 11 of his year, 14 years, President of France, for example, and many others. The fact that Robert Mugabe was seriously and deeply conflicted person uh, because he was both a Maoist and going privately in Maputo, lest his comrades see him changing cars two or three times to go to mass because he was trained as a Jesuit in a Jesuit school. And the only other person at that stage in the history in 1977 who was behaving like that was Pol Pot, who was also a Maoist and deeply conflicted and was a uh, Buddhist and both Mugabe and Buddhist and uh, Pol Pot had a link with the um, religious groupings that are basically spiritual, that they are in touch with spirits, and neither were fit, Mugabe or, or, 
and Mugabe said tragically showed out, but I did see this in 1978 right in front of my very eyes. And then, uh, of course, uh, Pol Pot just removing everybody from cities, three million people, and pushing them out of the country. So there's a lot of psychopathology out there amongst the leaders of our group. But so I, I focus this book more on America with some introductions in Britain. And the first thing I went down was the founding fathers, really. And what Americans write about quite a bit, but it's not easy to find here, and that is the difference between Jeffersonian democracy and Jacksonian democracy. And the importance of this is that Trump has a picture of Jackson in the White House, and he has likened himself to Jackson, egged on, I think, by Brennan. I'm not sure that Trump has read a great deal about Jackson. But, uh, uh, I mean, there are people who write books about Trump and say he's never read a thing in his life. I mean, that's complete rubbish. I mean, I have known people who have done business with him and uh, when he was a young man, and do say that when he went into the room, usually early in the morning, there was a pile of papers, and he mastered every single one of them. So don't let's treat him as a fool. He is not. And it makes it much harder for us to explain lots of other things. And therefore, if we're not truthful with ourselves about his qualities. But the other person I know who's known Trump for a long time, a woman, described him as irretrievably Trump. And that was in his manner and in his approach. And she says nothing has changed. And she had written about him, and he first moved into Trump Tower, and pictures in this lavish little quarter, something like that. And there's a photograph of him lounging on a bed, big double bed, of course, uh, with his uh, teenage uh, daughter, Ivanka, and his second wife, and their baby, and he's got an arm around Ivanka and an arm on a, tele a, a telephone, and he's obviously doing a deal while all this is going on. So, Jackson is the most interesting from our point of view. Uh, Jefferson is classical uh, democratic leadership, you know, it's like, it's like the elitists and everything like that. Jackson was an extraordinary figure, and I'm not going to go too much into it, but I mean, he was in a duel, shot in the right shoulder, his own trigger hadn't gone off. He cocked the trigger and cold blood shot the chap opposite him. There's a certain type of character that needs to do that. I won't go into Jackson. He is a much beloved uh, leader. And he is seen by many people as a great president. Uh, of course, it was frontiersman in time, and you met history is a long time ago, and you mustn't judge these people by all these things. But he had one interesting quality, uh, viewpoint in what we're facing now. He wrote uh, about the virtues of electing the president on a universal franchise, and he was hostile because of some of his early experiences to the uh, college, electoral college. Eight times as president, each year, he went to Congress and argued them to scrap the uh, uh, Electoral College. Trump, if you follow his tweets, there's a good book on Trump. I've read every one of them. I really have. So it's true. And um, I came across this tweet when uh, Romney lost, and Trump tweets, uh, what a dreadful thing the Electoral College is and thought, clearly, from the way he phrased his tweet, that Romney had lost 
only in the Electoral College, where in fact he'd actually lost in the uh, overall vote as well. Then comes the moment when Trump is on the Electoral College, and there's a wonderful tweet about how this is the only democratic procedure of electing presidents. So there's no chance of him following his hero or bringing him back uh, to be the, uh, get rid of the Electoral College. So the other thing about, no, on his tweets, it is absolutely fascinating to watch the timing because it's all there on the tweet, you know. And it's all, all times of the, all, every, any time of 24 hours. It doesn't matter. Night and day doesn't seem to have any difference to him. So what's he on, you say to yourself? Well, he's not on the juice in the sense he, doesn't, he hasn't drunk alcohol at all in his life. His brother was, uh, died of drinking. And he's, there's very little doubt he has not drunk alcohol. Um, but is he on amphetamines? Very common. I mean, the time of the 60s when he was starting to come up, uh, John F. Kennedy was drugged right up to here, not just with the drugs he needed for Addison's disease, but a combination from a Dr. Feelgood, uh, that was his nickname in New York, whose speciality was pumping an extraordinary combination of cut-up placenta, rat's tails, uh, amphetamines, and uh, steroids. And we know that Kennedy was on this extraordinary dosages. And he was on them at the time. It is, happens to be a fact that if you've got Addison's disease, which you affects your adrenals, uh, you're particularly sensitive to uh, being given amphetamines. So that it unbelievable situation going on in the 60s, 70s, and probably still goes on in America. I wrote some disobliging things about Kennedy's handling of the Bay of Pigs, which I thought was utterly disastrous, and was given the t thumbs down by my f great friend and publisher. And I suddenly realized why. He'd been a patient of Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> so you could never judge. Anyhow, I don't know what he's on. There's no evidence that he's on any drugs, but he would never be surprised if he was. But his timing and that sort of thing is completely there. Then I started to look at these other great characters of American politics, and they are great characters, and we have them too. And let's pair them together, Roosevelt and Teddy Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. Sometimes I think you have to be humble enough to recognize that so some people are so exceptional that they not only don't fit into DSM or the WHO classification, they don't fit in with any normal uh, category of individuals. I mean, the output in handwritten letters of Theodore Roosevelt was absolutely unbelievable. He would write 350 letters a day. Uh, he would have huge senses of uh, hubris in, 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 in any normal context of the word and uh, yet and he also had and has been recently diagnosed by uh, doctors in um, America as having uh, been bipolar and uh, there's no doubt he had very serious depressions at the time Churchill very similarly I mean there's very little doubt that he did have uh, bad depressions particularly when he was young and that he also, many people will say, has bipolar. But they've not yet really been able to produce an episode of manic, unless you think they were manic throughout their whole life. 
And there's abundant evidence that they were not, certainly either as president or as uh, prime minister. But they give you a key. And the other thing is that Roosevelt was a populist. As a matter of fact, there's quite a good case that Churchill's initial liberal years from 1904 to 1911, he was a populist. I mean, he absorbed Lloyd George's liberal credo, hook, line, and sinker. And here was this character with friends in the aristocracy, previously in the Tory party, father had been Randolph Churchill, Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, rather sad medical history. Um, but nevertheless, when you look at these people, you have to ask yourself all the time, can you always put a label on somebody? And can you not only sometimes say people are just so exceptional, so oddballish that they take Franklin Roosevelt? In many ways, he was a populist. Actually, you could argue so was um, Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson never moved an inch towards coming out in the First World War until he'd first ensured his presidency in the United States. And nobody reading his speeches up until his election could be sure that this was a man who would eventually declare for, uh, on the side of, uh, against Germany. And indeed, he took another two years before troops really came into the war. He had his eye all the time on what the American public would wear, and exactly the same in Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt didn't come into the war until he was bombed in uh, Pearl Harbor. And I think we tend to slide over some of these things. Politicians are there to be elected. I would say politicians have many defects, but they can count, particularly votes. <laughs> if you've lived like me dangerously in a marginal constituency with only uh, one time 400 votes between you and being ex thrown out. You, you take these things quite seriously. My wife used to say when an election was called, we'd look at the back pages of the British Medical Journal for vacancies. <laughs> uh, so when you look at these people, take an example of hubris, which is absolutely clear-cut in some respects. When he won for the second time uh, Franklin Roosevelt, his New Deal had been continuously scuppered. Uh, by the Republicans and he was having a lot of time and they were unfolding it by appeals to the Supreme Court. He had, uh, I think that days the Senate was something like about 86 people, it wasn't 100 now, and he, uh, over 60, 65 of them were Democrats. So he announced that he was going to reform the uh, Supreme Court and increase its numbers from 9 to 15. Effectively, he was going to pack the Supreme Court. And you could argue a supreme act of hubris to do it. That's how it was labelled by the press. And uh, a few months later, when it came to the legislation, the Senate rejected it, lock, stock and barrel, most of them being Democrats who'd voted against it. So what did Roosevelt do? He started pouring, he was a great command for pouring cocktails for his cabinet ministers after they'd done some work. And he said to them, he said, we all got to enjoy ourselves now. He said, have fun. And I'm going to have fun. I'm going to appoint the next uh, vacancy for the Supreme Court. And I'm going to choose 
the Democrat who spent all his time arguing for packing the court. And that load of, I don't think he swore, but politicians, they'll do what they always do. They'll rally round their own people and choose a fellow senator, even if he had diametrical different views. And so they did. So he laughed the whole thing off. He didn't have a, a grudge. He didn't hold a thing. He realized he'd made a great mistake. And this is another leads me into a future. He had in his life people who, like Howe. Howe was a remarkable person, was with him when he got polio, lived throughout his life. Then the only person in the White House who never called him president. And he would uh, say, Franklin, that's absolute rubbish, <laughs> and get away with it. And he was himself, he thought of, and coined the phrase, a toeholder. And a lot of people, a great deal of hubris, almost deliberately have around them toeholders. In Franklin Roosevelt's life, it was first Howe, then Howe died, and interestingly, Howe died six months before he announced his intention to pack the Supreme Court. And everybody who knows him knows that he would have said to uh, Franklin, this is a step too far, Franklin. Deal with it another way. Don't, don't, don't do this. And then he had, of course, Hopkins was his crucial foreign policy toeholder during the Second World War, Roosevelt. But he also had his wife, Eleanor. Their marriage had really broken down in, in a physical sense, but they were still both New Dealers, and she was a passionate New Dealer, and she kept him up to his radicalism and to his New Dealing. And then he also had a judge from New York who he valued his wisdom and dragged him away from New York court down to the White House against he and his wife's will. But as he said, how can you say no to a president? and was a crucial figure, particularly as he grew ill during the war. And there were uh, his secretary, Missy, who loved him. Now, some people argue he had a physical relationship with her, uh, and others people not, despite his polio, didn't, he wasn't impotent. Uh, who knows? But she was extremely important. And when she died, those who were close to him thought this was one of the biggest gaps in his whole life, of not having this person who is devoted to him, but also critical and capable of making serious criticisms. Churchill had uh, people like this in his life, above all his wife, Clementine. And she sensed in July 1940 that he was different. And she wrote to him and she said, I've torn up three letters already, but I'm determined you're going to get this. You're not as you think you are. You're not uh, as you used to be. You're becoming very short. You're not listening to young people. They used to love engaging with you. Now, you're the most powerful man in the country other than the king. You know, you don't need to do this. You can, you could change, you know. A wonderful letter. I said to my wife, why aren't you doing this to me? <laughs> when I was foreign secretary, she said, I was telling it you every day. And it is true. Not always with the greatest success, I might say. Because I write about hubris. It takes one to know one, you know. And so we have to analyze this whole thing and try to come. There's a lot of hubris in Trump. And then now I want to leave time for questions. And so I'm going to end. But I'm going to just take you through a few more chapters. They go through people. How do you handle Trump? Wilson had to handle LBJ. And he did it extremely well. LBJ had one interest. 
Lyndon Johnson. He wanted Britain to send troop, even a bugler in a kilt will do, he said. He just wanted us to identify militarily with the Vietnam War, and Wilson refused him. How do you deal with a person like Eden, who lied about the uh, arrangements with Israel and with uh, the France over the Suez Canal? And he lied to the House of Commons. Uh, but he had a reason for it. That man during that crisis had a temperature of over 106. That's a lot for a man. He was having the consequences of a botched operation on his gallbladder. But if you have Churchill breathing fire and damnation, insisting on seeing the surgeon and putting the fear of God into the surgeon, you can see why he might have slipped the knife. But more importantly also, Eden denied the advice of his physician, Horder, and said, I'm going to have the same surgeon as took my appendix out. And Horner had a little difficulty in convincing him, and didn't convince him, that uh, it's a little more skilled to have your gallbladder taken out than your appendix taken out, where politicians make all sorts and huge mistakes. There are many others. I look again at Kennedy and get people to face up to his great strength was the way he handled the Cuban Missile Crisis. But by that time, in 62, he was a completely different man to the man who had made the mess of the Bay of Pigs in 61. He was more or less off uh, all but his essential treatment. He had a medical course, instead of having 10 or 15 doctors all pumping different things into him and not knowing who was doing what, he had one person controlling his life, and he was an Austrian ski instructor who appealed to Kennedy's sort of uh, chutzpah and uh, machismo, and he kept him on the straight and narrow with exercises and taking out less drugs. But where does it all lead? The one outstanding characteristic of Trump is he has no regards whatever for the truth. Uh, there's a Washington Post keeps a uh, checklist of facts. Uh, he's well over the 5,000 proven uh, falsehoods that he's uttered. Does it matter? Some people say all politicians cheat, all politicians uh, short with the truth. Lying is becoming a feature. Fake news is here to stay. Well, I say to you, firstly, nobody can be sure that Trump might not win the next election. Uh, and if we had eight years of lying at that level and with that number of things, it would have profound effect on American life. One of the things I learned when I spent three years penal servitude in the Balkans, to which the, it was referred, of trying to bring peace to those at troubled time, you discovered a group of people, didn't matter whether they were Serb, Croat, or uh, Bosnian, many of whose leaders, and others too, had absolutely no understanding of what the truth is. No respect for the truth, they didn't recognize the truth, and they were strangers to the truth. And the more I then, when I did business, is this absence of respect for the truth is corrosive and book with a mendacity uh, uh, schedule. And I'll read it to you. This is hubris to mendacity amongst American or British Prime Ministers. Anthony Eden, Suez Amphetamines.
which he was taking. Uh, his wife swears that he was never taking any pet pills, but he was on uppers and downers, and I, I found that evidence in Birmingham University where his are held. John F. Kennedy, I've already mentioned, Bay of Pigs, testosterone, procaine, and other mind-changing drugs in huge quantities for the Bay of Pigs, but not the Krugel-Nassau crisis. Richard Nixon, Watergate, alcohol. There was a crisis in the Middle East. Fortunately, Kissinger and the general who is his aide-de-camp handled the Russians, and Nixon was upstairs in bed, completely plastered. So yet you can still read biographies of Nixon saying that it never affected his decision-making, and similarly of Kennedy. Now, Lyndon Johnson, I've already mentioned, bipolar disorder, Vietnam. Tony Blair, Iraq war, present day, reason I think probably high stress. George Bush, Iraq war, but only till 2006 he then did fess up to the fact he hadn't put enough troops on the ground and he did do the strengthening of the armed forces and the other interesting thing about Bush he retired firstly he paved the way by, for Obama by letting it be known publicly that he'd refused Olmert, the Israeli Prime Minister's request for the weapons and the technology to bomb Iran and he took the flak himself and shielded Obama which was a a friendly and a statesmanlike action. But in retirement, he's lost a, a lot of this hubris, cockiness, and things like that. And well, well, George has come back to us. All of that is, that is perhaps one of the most convincing, in my mind, of these big leaders, that this is an acquired syndrome. And if it's acquired syndrome, if the stress, if that is the main thing, and I think it probably is, and if this main... Uh, uh, neurotransmitted serotonin with its impulsivity, then I think you can understand why it happens in times of great stress, and particularly a war that goes wrong under your control, which is what happened for both Blair and Bush. And then exposed by a special prosecutor in America, of some relevance to what we're discussing now, and incidentally I hope they beat Trump in the opinion, in the real polls, in the voters' polls, at the next election and not by impeachment, but that's not my responsibility. I'm not writing about telling Americans what to do. I don't even make the result. But here you get Reagan, Iran-Contra affair, emotional, and he's, of course his plea, which was believed, was that he couldn't remember. He wasn't that stupid. Uh, he had a very interesting mind. I met him, and I was... Um, Humor, uh, some mocking humor. Clinton, well, that was Monica Lewinsky, sexual. We usually uh, more f forgiving than that. Trump, presidential, which I've already referred to. And what for the future? Who knows? But all I'm saying, we have got to understand that behavioral research is every bit as important as every other type of research, and it is neglected by our profession, doctors and psychologists that don't get much coverage. And if you want to see hubris written all over an issue which you can remember, perhaps in your pockets, the 2008 uh,
collapse of the world financial system, Lehman Brothers, uh, RBS, the chief executives of them and tens of uh, hundreds more were all people with huge hubris. So it is extremely damaging to all of us. And I don't think it is getting the recognition that we must somehow try to turn towards it. Okay? So let's uh, take questions now. Anybody got anyone? Yes, sir? How do we? Sorry. How do how do we how do we cope with that? Because we only have institutions and the politicians of today. Mm. Is there any evidence that they're going to find a way to cope with it? Well, I or think. Or do first, we have to create new new institutions and new political structures? I'm not sure it's so much new structures. I believe mentoring is very very important and can work. I know one company in the United States that takes. Uh, uh, words fail me every now and then nowadays. Uh, ma management for the succession management, very seriously. And they come across 32 year olds, 31 year olds, who have many of the characteristics they think that could make a really good chief executive in eight or ten years' time. And one of them has got the following. They, the chief executive uh, tells this person, you know, you're now in this pool of people who are looking forward to be successful, but you've got some problems and some criticisms have come up against you and that sort of thing. Now, it's not so easy for me to mentor you and help you because I'm your boss. Who do you admire most in industry or in our particular industry? Jack says perhaps a name or two. A guy knows most of the people in big American business. And he says, fine, I'll ring him up and I'll ask him to arrange directly with you, take you out for a meal twice or three times a year. He will, of course, come back and tell me things. And I may tell you things as a result of what he's told me, but it will go no further than that. And this has proved to be, they think, very successful. Now, it's just one example of it. But mentoring, I think, is being done by psychologists and is being done by industry and beginning to be done by banks but it's still not really penetrated the financial services industry who are still very reluctant to go down that route this is mamby pamby stuff and I think that's one of the areas that we've got to look at is more mentoring I think we've got to be much more aware about drugs we are far too casual about drugs practically every university in this country has hundreds of its students on these drugs which are meant to enrich their brain and there are a great many doctors who will go around telling you that it's no harm and it's perfectly alright for them to be and there was a cabinet paper about uh, eight years ago I, probably Cameron's government actually 
uh, casting absolutely no uh, criticism of this type of drug taking. And I think we, that's in the Ritalin family and others. So I think we've got to be very, very wary about this. an epidemic and we, we, we are dangerously getting that wrong ok next yes where would you put Susan May on the Huber's syndrome because I was looking and I, I spotted three yeah. well it's tricky I think um, I don't know her at all uh, she came into the house after I'd left but I watched her very carefully I've been in correspondence with him her, about a different, her, as a different way of coming out of the European Union, which I'm in favour of, and it was a much more gentle way of coming out through the European Economic Area and a more evolutionary way. And of course, she doesn't write her letters, and she has no reason to write to me. Incidentally, I mean, she could easily pass that down to a junior minister. But it gave me a very clear idea of what was around her and the structures and the framework that is around her. And I was writing a book on trying to get back cabinet. I mean, Blair abandoned cabinet government in 2001. It hasn't come back. And uh, Gordon Brown continued that uh, Cameron, of course, uh, Flashman, basically. He doesn't take any reason for it. And she. But I thought she had brought back cabinet government. So this book was called Cabinet's Finest Hour. And it was how skillfully Churchill with the aid of Attlee, had handled the war cabinet in 1940. And um, I had this line, it's now come back under Theresa May. And then the whole thing blew up, and everybody resigning, and the checkers meeting, and discovering that papers had come to cabinet that hadn't gone through Brexit secretaries, and let alone any other cabinet minister. Unfortunately, my publisher hadn't reached the final point of pulling the... <laughs> I was able to get the sentence out. I was extremely glad, because she's clearly... Uh, not with respect to cabinet. Has she got hubris? I can't. She's, she's. She read geography at uh, Oxford, and not very high orders. Uh, I, it is very difficult to be prime minister without an extremely alpha plus brain. I don't think she has that. I think she has great um, stubbornness and uh, stamina. And I think it is amazing that she handles her uh, diabetes in the way that she does, and also the way she goes and talks to children about it. So there's a lot that's admirable in her, and it would be very foolish to ignore that. But I don't think it's hubris. I think it's... Um, there was a couplet, wasn't there? If you put your lives, list He up. lives within predestinate grooves... Not a bus, not a train, but a tram. And uh, that is what she is. She is tram-like. She gets her vision, she forces herself into it, and she sticks to it. And that was very much her role in the Home Office. We now know she was up to some pretty bad things, but it was yes. kept from us. And she survived as Home Secretary, which is a graveyard for politicians. So, you know, she has many qualities, and we're going to be testing them in the next few days. But if you pull up your list, you can see she does have some of them. You some of them, yes. you know, moral mm. destiny. Yes. That I'm, you know, I am the. I know what the country wants. Yes. Yeah. No, I think, I. Uh, people say I'm too kind to her. Pardon? People say I'm too kind to her, and that I would would normally say and she would definitely you, has hubris if and I was. And Corbyn. 
while we're on the subject? Uh, I don't think Corbyn has hubris. I don't know him at all well. He came again into... We were in the House of Commons for a short period of time. He's got a good sense of humour, and uh, there's definitely... I've been on the end of that in a nice way, and um, I would say not much hubris. Um, uh, He's got other problems. Uh, (laughs) And uh, so now I don't think... Boris, uh, oh. Boris has got hubris, uh, yes. plus, plus, yes. and, uh, a measure of narcissism too, uh, but he is able and has got a very good mind. You think? If you read his book on Churchill, it's very well worth reading, it's an extremely good book, but if I wanted to mock, I would say it's about why Churchill is like me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. That was a very interesting um, lecture. Um, So we have a positive correlation between political power and hubristic behaviour. And I'd be interested to know, in your opinion, as I didn't quite make it to Foreign Secretary, who, in your opinion, had was the exception that proved the rule. In other words, who wielded real power on the global political stage and didn't display hubristic behavior? And I would suggest somebody such as Mikhail Gorbachev. Yeah. Well, I I, I knew Gorbachev better uh, after he resigned. I didn't really deal with him when he was uh, president of the Soviet Union. But I did deal with him afterwards and got to know him really quite well. And I don't think he has got hubris. And I think he's a very interesting figure. And we treated him badly. We didn't help him as we could have done. Um, Whereas Yeltsin, who is actually, I prefer to Gorbachev, drunk or sober, uh, does have huge, or did have huge hubris. There's no doubt about that. But he also had... I think some vital qualities at that particular moment in Russia's history, but we may find that he will be swept aside. I mean, he forced the market economy uh, with a lot of pain and terrible distress, actually. And I hope that it would be the market economy that would bring uh, Soviet communism under the law and cease to have its lying and deep other faults. Maybe that's going. Um, um, R by R ways but um, I don't think Putin has hubris I think he's um, more menacing in a way than hubristic behavior I think he is a calculated person and uh, but others uh, I think that um, Callahan uh, didn't have hubris um, a man who I think was streets in a way better as Prime Minister than he was in any of the three other big offices of state which he held, which was Home Secretary, uh, Foreign Secretary, and um, uh, Chancellor Exchequer. I voted for him only on the third ballot, I have to admit. Although I was the... Um, I have a lot to be grateful to him for. But I think he was... Attlee, of course, was not hubristic at all, and a remarkable man. And I don't believe you can look at Churchill's war record without bracketing not just Attlee, but... Uh, 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 person who often is not recognised his deputy 
But Churchill was a great chooser of men. This book, which I wrote about him, and I was, came away rather impressed. I mean, do you realize that when he asked Attlee to come into the government, uh, he also asked him, these are a list of people I hope you'll persuade to come into our Kurdish government. And the top name wasn't even an MP. Prizes for anybody who knows it. Ernest Bevin. So the most significant figure in Labour post-war, in a way, even more than actually post-war. I mean, he was a great foreign secretary. Ernest Bevin was picked out from the ruck, if you like, by Churchill. Very interesting phenomenon. So I, I don't know. I think that um, these leaders that I saw dealt with, Giscard d'Estaing, hugely vain and hubristic. Mitron, the Sphinx, they used to call him, unbelievably interesting person. And um, I'd known him, Francois David terms, when I was a young man in uh, Gauche European. He appointed me without the, fl well, he was one of the people who appointed me because I was a European appointment, without the flicker of sign that he had ever known me. I saw him many times for about three years, all the time he was suffering from cancer. Never one thing. I went to say goodbye to him. Again, absolutely formal, not a flicker. And then just as I, he put his hands out, shaped my hands, and he said, thank you, David. Incredible. These are, there are some freakish people around. <laughs> okay, yes, middle. Thank you. Um, you've laid out the path up to Trump in his antecedents. You've shown the, uh, how the path was almost inevitable uh, working up to him. What are the factors, the main factors, you think, in this extreme... Uh, that we're seeing at the moment? What's accelerated that yeah. apparent madness? Yes, well, uh, she definitely developed hubris on a very big scale. Um, but I think, again, I'm quite kind to Thatcher. I don't quite know why, but uh, I think because I saw quite a lot of her. For instance, when she walked out of number 10 and we'd just taken uh, Georgia Island, um, uh, and um, it was one of the little islands down near the Falklands but not you know, on it and she came out and she said rejoice, rejoice and everybody says who writes about her as being hubristic puts that case well I had seen her when she had just received the news of uh, very heavy casualties and the complete sinking of a ship and she was far from hubristic and um, I warned her about saying that you, she'd never bomb Argentinian airplanes because I said you could have a you could have a aircraft carrier with its propellers shot to pieces limping out of the area. You're going to want to take out those airfields. She listened and um, started to bridle, checked her bridling, and then thought about it. So this is an interesting woman. The key factor is the toeholder in her life was Willie Whitelaw. And the day that Willie Whitelaw left the cabinet, people who were in that cabinet keep saying, and that was about um, 87, 88, that she began to change. And she started treating particularly Geoffrey Howe with utter contempt. 
And Meryl Streep gets it all right in the thing up Hatcher. I mean, that's an kind example of Hubert's contemptuous behavior to his colleagues. She even starts to correct his um, uh, punctuation and spelling on the document in front of the whole cabinet. Now, th this is a potpourri of lots of little incidents, but the Meryl Streep episode there is all the more effective, of course, for concentrating these things. So she was uh, undoubtedly uh, hubristically almost out of control towards the end. Um, and I think that, I think she felt embarrassed by her own attitude to Europe because she had been at one point very keen on the European community, uh, on the single market legislation in the early part. And I think she'd begun to realize that she had not been honest with herself, probably, that she was upset about it. But I, I think that for most of her prime ministership, she was not suffering from hubris syndrome. Next. Right at the back. Oh. Oh, lady. So um, following on from the gentleman behind me, would you suggest that hubris is um, predominantly a male phenomenon? Um, or is it just that we don't have that many women in powerful positions? Well, the last conference the Daedalus Trust did, we used to have a yearly conference in the Royal Society of Medicine. We tried to make our views as far as possible evidence-based and as far as possible uh, subject to peer review. The article in Brain was sub subject to some... Peer review didn't exist when I was a young doctor. And it's very good. I only say that because it sort of focuses it. But that means I've lost your question. Just say it again. No, no, I was just asking whether you thought that hubris was predominantly a male phenomenon. Yes, yes. <laughs> the last of the conferences, that was why I went off down that byway, we had was a gender-driven conference, and uh, my uh, daughter-in-law was there, and she's a child psychiatrist, and she had arranged to get a lot of young women, and I emphasise young women, at the conference, and we had a proper serious discussion, all subjective, no objective evidence at all, but the overriding subjective view was less likely to get um, hubris. Now, you can't explain that just on testosterone because a lot of good work's been done by um, uh, a person I know well on testosterone amongst uh, in the stock exchange and people who are calling points. But testosterone exists in women as well, so we, we, we must not forget that, not think that it's... So uh, I think it is different, and I think it's... Um, well, I don't know, many, many arguments. I, I don't think I'm going to get into that. I leave that to Freud to tell you about. Thank you. Okay, right. Can you say two more questions? One more, yes. Yeah. You, two more. One here and one there, okay. Thank you, Lord uh, Owen. If I may, two questions. Um, <laughs> if I may. First one, quick and short. I'd love to hear your comment on... Uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, President of Turkey, and uh, Vice President, former Vice President Dick Cheney of the USA. Uh, and the second one, I heard your answer about Vladimir Putin, and you made me think perhaps there was, per perhaps you think there is a correlation between the Putins of the world and the Merkels of the world, thinking that the ones that do not tick the Hybris box are the ones who manage to remain in leadership for more time rather than others. Maybe. I think that that last point is probably is true. A longevity, maybe. But 
Erdogan, Erdogan definitely has hubris syndrome and he's had it for a long time and it's got worse and worse and so it's fed by vast sums of money that are spent on his palaces and on his own conditions on the other hand he has got things to be suspicious of I mean there is no doubt there have been coups against him and there is this uh, Turkish person in uh, America who he, he is totally convinced is behind everything I, I honestly don't know the facts about it but he certainly is who are the other ones you mentioned? Cheney, I haven't seen this film. I can't quite make up my mind whether I can face it, but uh, people say it's a good film. Um, I, I'm not sure whether he had hubris. He had a very clear-minded view of how to exercise power in the White House, which he'd gained by watching Ford, who he served, and he... Uh, persuaded uh, Bush to do quite a lot of things which I don't think Bush would ever have done and certainly the executive order I mean it absolutely uh, went over the weir flooded out executive orders under Bush and that is of course dangerous in that precedent is set so I don't know about then you see he's handled this issue of having a uh, daughter who is uh, got a girlfriend and I think married and I think having children even I don't know uh, very well he didn't um, duck it he didn't try to pretend it didn't exist he uh, faced it openly admitted that he had you know tested him to understand it and came through rather well I think and he's obviously got a wife who's who's very uh, helpful to him in cooling some of his other things you know, a cynical view of uh, Cheney is that he never wanted to invade uh, uh, Iraq. All he wanted to remove was um, Saddam Hussein. And as soon as you removed him, put in somebody else, you didn't count who he was, and you didn't ask for him to be nice or pleasant, but only whether he could control the country, and then get out. So he had learnt the lessons, if you like, of the uh, problems of uh, uh, nation-building but there was something much more unattractive. His attitude to uh, uh, torture and uh, waterboarding and all these things, they, they were gross, terrible. I think. And then your, your question. Is that allowed? Yes, yes. Uh, the last one. Yes, the last question. It's not a question about hubris, but you mentioned leaving the EU via the EEA. Mm -hmm. And I wondered how you foresaw that happening since the Norwegian Minister of Trade said that having the UK in the EA would be like inviting your abusive uncle to a Christmas party, spiking his drink and hoping it all goes well. He's, uh, he's withdrawn those remarks since. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I would never join the EA permanently. I just believe that it was a vehicle which already had uh, three other countries, Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein, outside the European uh, Union, but inside the single market and not in the customs union, which was exactly the right vehicle for us to transition through, would have made it much easier to deal with Ireland because most of the single market regulations that deal with the sensitive border questions of hygiene, animal hygiene and other things are all in the single market. Uh, 
my low point with my correspondence with the Prime Ministers when she wrote to me and said that uh, these powers, which are called SP, uh, were not I had to write to her and tell her, you better get some proper research work done on this and not... So, I, I don't know. I think that... Um, you know, I don't really want to go right through all this thing now. We've got a decision in front of us, which is no, we're not going to find any novel solutions. We've had an international treaty. In the old days, we had a thing called the Royal Prerogative, I would negotiate a treaty under the Royal Prerogative. I bring it back to the House of Commons. The answer was yes or no. Once we went down this route of trying to say that Parliament could involve itself in the negotiations, it was fatal and outrageous demand. And people who know, ought to know better should never have done it. You have to accept the fact that if you're negotiating, in this case with 27 countries, you've got to be able to deal across the table. And you've got to make an overall package, which you won't like every aspect of come back with it. We've now got that in front of us. And uh, we've long last got a star in this government. Maybe he isn't, but the way to judge lawyers is by their payment. And the present Attorney General was one of the wealthiest and highest earners, not in a narrow field, say a fraud or anything, but fairly across the board. And he's turned, in my view, to be the star. First of all, he told the Cabinet quite openly that they're the, the um, agreement, the withdrawal agreement they'd signed up to was one you couldn't get out of. And you should never have signed up to it once they'd read that. And that was a really crass error of May to have gone down that route. She really put her head in the noose and it very nearly took her head off. And now uh, we face, can he, Cox, persuade the others in the EU to make some changes which in his view will make it much more likely that you could come out of this agreement. Because there's something paradoxical about it. Article 50, which is in the Lisbon Treaty of 2007, for the first time gave a mechanism that you could leave the EU. You then go in under Article 50 and negotiate an agreement, and you end up not being able to get out of it. <laughs> now that, I mean, I wish I was in front of the 27 heads of government in uh, Abu Dhabi or whatever it is on Sunday. I think I'd just say to that, no, come on, this is the situation. You didn't mean to do it. You landed us with it. No government can accept this. There's none of you who would be able to accept it. Give me a little help, please. Whether they will or not, I don't know. I hope they will. I think they will. I think that that's the way the European Union does its deals right at the last moment. And I think Cox will come and tell the House of Commons early next week that they have got a form of words, most of it in the political declaration, which is, of course, not legal itself. I doubt they'll change very much uh, the uh, actual uh, agreement, and the House of Commons will have to make its mind up and uh, stop faffing around. And uh, I personally think, with the help of some Labour MPs, she has at long last shown some recognition that she would not have got this far without some Labour MPs helping her. And she's um, given uh, guarantees, I think, satisfied even McCluskey, that they are not going to use coming out of Europe to change the uh, essential rights that trade unions have fought for long and hard, and rightly so, and not, don't want to see broken up on some sort of model of Singapore or something like that. So I think she's satisfied them on that, and I think she's also satisfied them, particularly those in the north with constituencies with 75% voting to get out, 
that there will be a substantial transfer of money to try and deal with the problem. I'm a lifelong European. I voted with 69 Labour MPs on a, against a three-line whip to go in. I went into a common market. I then went into European community. I was still happy. When it started to be a Eurozone, I don't believe you can run a currency unless you are a country. I am a believer that the only way out of our present problem is for France and Germany to put their act together and effectively create a federal Europe, a United States of Europe. But for me, I've been opposed to it ever since I heard Hugh Gateskill when I was a parliamentary candidate for Torrington, North Devon in 1962. <laughs> and I have not prepared now to give up control of our foreign policy and our defense policy and our overall sense of being a country. I was ready to go very far, the European rebel, but I had limits. And when they crossed and our great beloved Prime Minister, Mr Cameron, gave us the opportunity of a referendum to vote. I voted against it. I don't, I'm not allowed to vote in general elections, you know, along with convicts and uh, um, uh, mentally insane and lords are not allowed to vote. But I was allowed to vote in that referendum. And it comforts me that the city in which I was born, although I'm Welsh, but I am a Plymouthian and have represented in Parliament more than any other MP in their history, voted 60-40 to come out. And they didn't come and vote to either leave or think about remain. They used to put the words out with a finality that made me realize they'd made up their minds many months, many years before. There's a deep-seated rejection of what the European Union has become and they think will become. Now, you can ignore it if you like. This parliament is showing every signs of trying to do it. I don't like to be a member of parliament if they reject it. And I think she will scrape home probably with a two or three votes in a vote possibly even next week. And then we will come out and we will come out with an agreement and it will be a wholly manageable situation and I believe will be looked on in 10 years time. It's been a very wise decision, but I may be wrong on all counts. <laughs>